0: As we continue in our study of the book of John, we are now in chapter 4. So making headway. uh, It's a story of the Samaritan woman, uh, also known as the woman at the well. Um, If you are able, please stand uh, for the reading of God's word. We'll be reading John chapter 4, verses 1 through 15. And he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, "'Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob?' He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, "'Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again.' The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Father, as we come together to exegete your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit will lead us into all truth. We pray, Father, that the proclamation of your word will be gospel-centered, that it will be Holy Spirit-enabled, and that it will exalt Christ. We pray all of these things so that Christ may be glorified in him alone. And We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I mentioned, we are now in uh, John chapter 4, the study of uh, the Samaritan, the, uh, the woman at the well. The woman at the well is not the best description for the story, though. It's really the story of Jesus evangelizing an outcast woman. We're given here a superb model to follow when evangelizing the lost, The woman of Samaria doesn't know or care about Jesus, so it's instructive for us to consider as we approach uh, an unbelieving world that is indifferent to the gospel. In this story, we see both the humanity and the deity of Jesus. His humanity is on display as he sits down beside a well, weary, he's worn out, He's thirsty. Most likely, he's hungry as well. Hebrews 4.10 tells us, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. His deity is also on display. He meets a woman he has never met in his life and knows her entire history. The Apostle John has not set aside the purpose of the book to tell us this story. He writes so that we may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing we have life in his name. He wants us to have saving faith. Not like those who believed in Jesus because of the miracles. He wants us to have the kind of faith that leads to eternal life. We can respond to this message In one of two ways. We can respond with self-made religion and behavior modification, like Nicodemus did. Or we can respond to this message in a way that is reliant on the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, through which flow the power of God. This story isn't presented in a vacuum. There are a number of connections to what we've studied previously in the book of John. We go all the way back to chapter 2. We're told in verse 24 that Jesus knows all people. Then he enters into a number of conversations in which he instantly gets the hearts of individuals. We saw this in chapter 3 with Nicodemus. We see it in chapter 4 with the the Samaritan woman and the official whose son Jesus healed. And in chapter 5 with the man at the pool of Bethesda. Water symbolism also continues. Jesus turned water into wine at the wedding of Cana. He told Nicodemus that he must be born of water and the Spirit to enter the kingdom of God. Last week, Pastor Chris talked about the theme of water in baptism. In this story, Jesus will talk about living water that only he can provide. There are four main points to today's sermon. First, the divine appointment in verses 1 through 6. Second, the universality of the gospel, verses 7 to 9. Third, the gift and the giver in verses 10 to 12. And fourth, how only living water satisfies, verses 13 to 15. In the first few verses of our text, the Apostle John masterfully sets the stage for the conversation with the Samaritan woman. Point one, the divine appointment. If you look at verse one, it starts with the word now, and that connects us to what has been said in chapter three. As Pastor Chris told us last week, a Jew and John the Baptist's disciples were having a conversation about purification. So they came to John the Baptist, John 3.26 says, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi... He who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. Some of John the Baptist's disciples were concerned about the growing popularity of Jesus' ministry. The way they saw it, it was at their master's expense. John the Baptist says, in essence, guys, you've got it all wrong. I am not the Christ. Then he says, he must increase but I must decrease. With that context, we pick up in John 4, verses 1 to 3. Now, when Jesus learned that the disciples had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Jesus has a thriving ministry in Judea, yet he leaves all of that to go back to Galilee. Notice that Jesus doesn't leave when the ministry becomes popular, but when the Pharisees learn of the popularity of his ministry. So why does the Pharisees' knowledge of this result in Jesus going back to Galilee? John MacArthur explains, The Lord did not want a public rivalry to develop between his followers and those of John. He also knew that in his father's sovereign plan, a public confrontation with Jewish authorities was still premature. So, according to MacArthur, there seemed to be two reasons that Jesus leaves for Galilee. First, he didn't want the two ministries pitted against one another. Second, the time had not yet come for Jesus to confront the Jewish authorities. We see a similar example in John 7.30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Jesus is in sovereign control of the timing of his arrest. And in the same way, he's in control here of the timing of his confrontation with the Jewish authorities. He's on a divine schedule. Verse four, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, when I was growing up, The sermons that I heard always said that Jews always took the long route around Samaria. In reality, while there were some Jews that would take the long route to avoid the Samaritans, most Jews went through Samaria. Going around would roughly double their three-day journey on foot. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, wrote, It was the custom of the Galileans, when they came to the holy city, Jerusalem, at the time of the festivals, to take their journeys through the country of the Samaritans. So most Jews would go through Samaria when traveling between Judea and Galilee in the north. This doesn't, however, take away from the thought that Jesus is leaving a popular ministry for a divine appointment. He had to pass through Samaria, as it says, not because of geography, but because there's a God-ordained conversation that he's about to have. He's always conscious of doing his Father's will, which is why he comes to earth. Jesus says in John six thirty-eight, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Verses 5 and 6. So he came to a town of Samaria called Saqqar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. The field that Jacob gave Joseph has some significance both to the Samaritans and to the Jews. In Genesis 48, 22, Jacob, who's renamed Israel at this point, bequeaths land to his son Joseph. Many years later, when the Israelites conquered Canaan and settled there, they bring the bones of Joseph with them out of Egypt, and they bury them there in that plot of land. Joseph's tomb is a few hundred yards from Jacob's well. Jesus arrives at the well about noon, the sixth hour since daybreak. Jesus, being fully man as well as fully God, is weary from his journey. Jesus sits down by the well. Wells were usually carved from a solid limestone rock, and they have a small curb to guard against accidents. Jesus is likely resting against this. The stage is set. Jesus is ready for his divine appointment. He's at the right place at the right time in keeping with his Father's will. Point two, the universality of the gospel. Verses seven to nine. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. To understand the full context of what we're reading here, we really need to look at the Old Testament. As you remember from our study of 1 and 2 Kings, that was a long time ago, um, the reign of David <clears throat> is followed by the reign of Solomon. At the death of Solomon, the kingdom is divided. There are 10 tribes in the north that are called Israel, and two tribes in the south, known as Judah. God sends prophets to both Judah and Israel. Judah has some good kings, but most of them are bad. Pretty much all of the kings of Israel are bad. Israel's is taken into captivity by the Assyrians. Judah survives for another 135 years or so before they're taken into captivity by Babylon. When Israel is taken into captivity, the Assyrians take the leaders and the educated people, out of the land. They move them to other countries, leaving only the poor of the land. Then they resettle the land with other conquered people and put them in Israel. The Jews that are not deported intermarry with the foreigners, forming a mixed race known as the Samaritans. The capital city, Samaria, is also the name of the whole region. The new settlers bring their religions with them. Over time, the Samaritans still worship Yahweh, but their worship becomes corrupted. They only accept the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible as scripture. They reject the rest of the Old Testament, the books of the writings and the prophets. When Jewish exiles from Judah, the two tribes that are in the south, return to the land from Babylon, they begin rebuilding the temple. Ezra chapter 4 says, the Samaritans come and they want to help. Ezra 4.3 says, But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Rebuffed, The Samaritans built their own temple on Mount Gerizim about 100 years later, around 400 B.C. This temple is destroyed by the Jews in 126 B.C. So there are centuries of bitterness between the Jews and the Samaritans. When the Jewish leaders really want to insult Jesus, they call him a Samaritan. John 8.48 says the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? The Samaritans reciprocated the hostility of the Jews. In Luke 9:51 to 53, the Samaritans did not receive Jesus because he's on his way to Jerusalem. They didn't accept Jerusalem as a place where God is to be worshipped. So, with that context, in verse 7, Jesus takes the initiative To speak to the woman who comes to draw water. This is a shocking break with culture. No wonder she acts, reacts to what he says in astonishment and is suspicious when Jesus asks for a drink. She's both a Samaritan and a woman. Jewish men usually did not speak to women they didn't know in public, unless perhaps they were looking for a wife. Abraham's servant found a wife for Isaac at a well, and Jacob found Rachel at a well, but no self-respecting rabbi would speak to a woman, much less a Samaritan woman. And this woman was particularly scandalous. She had had five successive husbands, but the man she was living with now was not her husband. Women in this culture usually come to the well in groups in the cool part of the day, That this woman is coming around noon in the heat of the day indicates that she's likely an outcast. Because of her immoral lifestyle, she's trying to avoid other women. Verse 8 says that the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. This is significant for two reasons. First, it explains why the disciples were not there at the time. Second, the fact that Jesus and his disciples were willing to purchase food from the Samaritans shows a certain freedom from the self-imposed restrictions of stricter Jews. Some Jews are unwilling to eat food touched by Samaritans. Samaritan women, like Gentiles, are considered to be in a state of ritual uncleanliness. Using a Samaritan woman's jar, ritually undefined. Ritually defiles a Jew. So, this may be a, another source of the woman's surprise. Didn't Jesus know that even her water jar is considered unclean? She does not know, though, that far from being defiled by what is unclean, Jesus sanctifies whatever he touches. Jesus touches a leper and brings healing. Matthew 8, 2, and 3. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Some of us may be weighed down by our sin. We're so ashamed of our uncleanliness and defilement. But if we repent and turn away from our sin, Jesus will touch us and cleanse us. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you, Jesus. Another important point of context is the placement of the account of the Samaritan woman in chapter 4. It comes... Right after the account of Nicodemus in chapter 3. These two individuals could not have been more different. Nicodemus is a member of the Sanhedrin, a wealthy, educated, important man. The Samaritan is a poor, uneducated peasant woman. Not only that, but an outcast among women. Nicodemus is a Jew. The, Samaritan is a, the woman's a Samaritan who's looked down on by the Jews. Nicodemus is a moral Pharisee. The woman has made a mess of her life. Nicodemus sees the signs of Jesus and seeks him out. The Samaritan woman doesn't know anything about Jesus and is indifferent to him. Yet these two opposite people both desperately need the same Jesus we've been told in John 3 that God so loved the world that he gave his only son now we see Jesus going beyond the borders of Israel to proclaim the good news it's a testimony that salvation is for all who believe regardless of your gender socioeconomic status race nationality or morality you need Jesus. These conversations that Jesus has points us to the fact that we all need salvation that is found in him alone. So far in the Gospel of John, we have seen the Apostle John present Jesus as the Messiah. We have the testimony of John the Baptist. We have the witness of his disciples. But with the Samaritan woman, woman, we have for the first time the testimony of Jesus himself in John 4.26, that he is the Messiah. The declaration from his own lips is not given to a significant religious leader like Nicodemus. It's not given to the religious establishment. It's not even given to a Jew. It's given to a Samaritan woman who is in every sense an outcast. The application for us is to see people as God sees them. Our culture loves to categorize people, put them into classes and rank them, but we are all sinners desperately in need of a Savior. Romans 10, 12, and 13 says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved." I visited a friend of a friend once to explain the gospel because he wanted to become a Christian. Another time, a co-worker asked me, how do you know you're going to heaven? But for every person who approaches you with a spiritual question, you encounter many, many more who are indifferent to the gospel. For every Nicodemus, you will encounter a multitude Of Samaritan women. Here we have an opportunity to learn from Jesus. What did he do when he encountered someone who is indifferent to religious things? We see Jesus talk to her about salvation, he evangelizes her. If the conversation is to turn to spiritual things, we have to take the initiative. If we're to share the gospel, we have to bring it up. It's not going to just come up in conversation. Now, if we had been there, we might have come up with many reasons not to share under these circumstances. The Samaritan woman is a foreigner, we might have said, but that's not a barrier to sharing the gospel. The gospel is for every tribe and language and people and nation. Well... She doesn't know much about spiritual things, and and half of what she does know is wrong. But the gospel is for both Jews who know their Old Testament and Gentiles who are ignorant of the things of God. Well, this woman is living an immoral lifestyle, and I just didn't feel led, you know? But the gospel is for sinners, Jesus says in Luke 5.31, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now's just not a good time. I'm I'm tired, and I'm thirsty, and I'm hungry. But Jesus prioritized evangelizing the lost over his own comfort. The example of our Lord is to talk to a Nicodemus and talk to a Samaritan woman. The gospel is universally needed. It's our responsibility to universally proclaim the gospel in fulfillment of the Great Commission. Point three, the gift and the giver. Please look with me at verses 10 to 12. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Notice the words, if you knew the gift of God. This is where evangelism starts. Jesus has a common point of interest, physical water and thirst. And he starts the conversation right there. Jesus then refers to a gift, living water, and to himself as the giver. He uses a physical example to convey a spiritual meaning. The people at this time referred to living water as fresh water from a moving stream or water from a spring as opposed to stagnant water. Using the term living water to portray a spiritual meaning wasn't something that was new. It was used that way in the Old Testament. For example, Jeremiah 2.13 says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Here God is portrayed as the fountain, the source of water. Now, the, the first five books of the Bible, which the Samaritans held to be canon also have a story which demonstrates that God is the source of living water. If the woman really knew her Torah, she would have understood this. Numbers 20 verses 8 to 11 tells how the Israelites were without water in the wilderness. So they arrayed themselves against Moses and Aaron. Why did you bring us here to die? Their favorite question. So God tells Moses to speak to a specific rock to bring forth water. So that the people can drink. But Moses is mad at the people. So he says, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Uh oh. He's claiming glory that belongs to God. And God will not share his glory with another. Moses speaks as if he and Aaron are the ones bringing forth water. And he doesn't speak to the rock, he strikes it twice. But God, not Moses, is the source of living water. One who is greater than Moses, is standing in front of this Samaritan woman, but all she can see is a Jew with no way to draw water. She does not yet perceive his glory. She still thinks that he 's talking about physical water, just like the Jews thought Jesus was talking about the physical temple and John chapter 2. Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Just as Nicodemus thinks that Jesus is talking about physical birth in John chapter 3. So Nicodemus asks, how can a man be born when he is old? But the physical is used only as an illustration of spiritual reality. The woman's claim that Jacob gave us the well and drank for it himself is purely traditional. Genesis doesn't record such an incident. Jesus refuses to get sidetracked by this. There's an application here for us. When we're presenting the gospel, we need to give honest answers to honest questions, but we shouldn't get sidetracked by every objection that gets thrown out. Now, that takes discernment. At times, you may need to ignore comments and just keep sharing Or agree to come back to a certain objection later on. As you share, pray silently for the leading of the Holy Spirit. In addition to the comment about Jacob's well, the woman asks two questions. The first is, where do you get that living water? She's very skeptical. The woman knows that even the patriarch Jacob found it necessary to dig a well to get the water. Jesus is offering water without digging a well. And without even a bucket to draw the water. The second question is, are you greater than our father Jacob? The expected answer is no. D.A. Carson says, Misunderstanding combines with irony to make the woman twice wrong. The living water Jesus offers does not come from an ordinary well. And Jesus is in fact far greater than the patriarch Jacob. The Samaritan woman doesn't understand either the gift or the giver, but Jesus continues to share with her. He tells her more about the gift of living water in verses 13 to 15. Next week, we'll study verses 16 to 42, where he reveals his identity as the Messiah. When we share the gospel, we should follow the example of our Lord. Talk about the gift and the giver. Explain the gift of God Salvation and eternal life through repentance and faith, and emphasize the giver, Jesus, and the work of Jesus through whom salvation is possible. Verses 7 to 19 are nine verses that are dominated by the Greek word didomi, translated as give, given, and gave in the ESV, in all that occurs seven times. In these nine verses, over and over again, Jesus points to the gift from God and his identity as the giver. As with Nicodemus, he immediately moves from the physical to the spiritual plane. In the next few verses, Jesus tells us more about this living water. Point four, only living water satisfies. Verses 13 to 15. Jesus said to her, Everyone who, who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. The repeated reference to thirst indicates that Jesus ministers to a keenly felt need. This is a dry country where water is scarce. Scripture uses it as a symbol for spiritual desire. Psalm 42, 1. As the deer pants for flowing streams, living water, so my soul pants for you, O God. Psalm 63, 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water that describes every one of us spiritually we are like travelers that are lost in the desert of sin and death our only hope is the water that god provides sometimes we try to fill our souls with other things we turn to a person or an activity this good work or that entertainment hoping to find the solution for a while it seems that we've stumbled on water to quench our soul but it's like salt water and only leaves us parched more parched than before the root of our sin is seeking to fill our souls in something other than god jesus tells the woman everyone who drinks of this water the physical water from jacob's well will be thirsty again but the water that Jesus gives will permanently satisfy our thirst. So what is this living water? What is Jesus talking about in verse 14? The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Well, John tells us exactly what it is. John seven thirty seven to 39 says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Living water is the indwelling Holy Spirit, imparting spiritual life, resulting in regeneration. Regeneration, being born again, is a work of the Spirit of God. Notice that our text says, welling up to eternal life. God keeps those who are born again safe for all eternity and seals us with the Holy Spirit. There's an already and not yet aspect to the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee, the down payment that we will receive our inheritance as promised. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. When God gives us the Holy Spirit, he commits himself to give all further blessings of eternal life. All who have the Holy Spirit within them, all who have been truly born again, have God's promise that we will live in heaven with him. Jesus tells the woman, whoever drinks of this water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. We're all born with a longing for spiritual fulfillment. God designed us that way. C.S. Lewis said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God put eternity in our hearts. Only God can satisfy our longing. John Piper famously said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Only Jesus and quench your thirst, stop drinking from the wells of sin, and come to Jesus. He offers living water, only He offers what can truly satisfy. in closing, the story of Jesus evangelizing an outcast woman of Samaria is similar to our own story. For those of us who have been saved, we are like the woman at the well. We were in sin, strangers to the covenants of promise. But in a divine appointment, he sought us out. As Gentiles, we were made partakers of his inheritance through the universality of the gospel. This inheritance is sealed by the Holy Spirit, a gift given by God, who is the giver. And he gives us living water, which alone can satisfy our thirst for him. Ephesians 2 12 and 13 says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Let's pray. Father, help us to consider the example of Jesus and be like him who sought out sinners. Help us to share the gospel so that others can receive the living water, the only water that can truly satisfy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.